And for our time together this morning, as uh, Doug already mentioned, uh, I've entitled our time together, Faith Without Fear. Faith Without Fear. And my heart was really drawn to discussing the topic of anxiety with you, talking about anxiety. I wanted to share with you how the Lord has directed me during times of my life when I was anxious. Relatively speaking, growing up, I was not a very anxious person. That changed, however, in my 20s, early 20s when I get married and and have children, and all of a sudden, in my mind, I have more things at stake, more things uh, at risk, and so that's when I first experienced moments in my life of, of serious anxiety. I've had one panic attack in my life. It's actually kind of a funny story in our family. Um, Rachel and I were newly married. We went out to eat at an Italian restaurant, and uh, I had a little too much to eat, okay? Too much to eat. And, I mean, as you probably know, I was young. I had a high metabolism but low intellect. And I overindulged a little bit, and we're sitting there at the dinner table, and I start to have heart palpitations because I'm so full. And I'm just thinking, you know, something, something is wrong. Something's going on with my heart. Am I having a heart attack? Oh, my goodness, I am having a heart attack. I'm going to die. That's what I was thinking sitting there at this restaurant. And at that very moment, Rachel leans over and goes, do I have something in my teeth? (laughs) And I just thought, if I literally died right now, what kind of story would that be? (laughs) Went to the hospital, got an EKG, said, you're fine. You've had heart palpitations. You probably had a panic attack. You're okay. And I felt totally fine a little bit later. Maybe you can relate to these things. Maybe in your life, maybe beginning in your early 20s, you started to feel anxiety, anxious about things, anxious about your life, anxious and worried about things that you never were anxious or worried about before growing up. I'm sure to one degree or another, all of us here in this room have struggled with anxiety. We worry about our health. We worry about the health of our loved ones, family members. We worry about the safety of our children, the safety of our aging parents. We worry about our finances. We worry about our successes and failures at work. We worry about our accomplishments, our tasks, our assignments. We worry about the future. We worry about our country. We worry about the economic state. We worry about the next president. The list is infinite of things that we worry about. But why do we worry so much? Why do we worry? Now, if you were to ask the medical world, if you were to ask psychiatrists, psychologists, psychotherapists, you would be inundated with a lot of possible explanations as to why we worry. But fundamentally speaking, they would categorize anxiety as an illness, According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, that sounds like a fun organization to join. (laughs) The Anxiety and Depression Association of America, or the ADAA, they say anxiety disorders 
are the most common mental illness in the United States. They say that nearly 40 million adults are affected by anxiety disorders every year. And these various anxiety disorders can be things like generalized anxiety disorder or GAD. It could be panic disorders, social anxiety disorders, specific phobias, stress, obsessive-compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and the list goes on and on with several other related disorders. But how do these disorders come about? Well, according to the ADAA, anxiety disorders develop from a complex set of risk factors, including genetics, brain chemistry, personality, and life events. You see, to the professionals like the ADAA, anxiety is an illness. It's an illness, it's a disorder that comes about by factors that are entirely outside of your control. There are instances in which anxiety can be, there are instances in which anxiety can be brought about because of physical, organic matters. We do know that some physical organic issues in the body can cause increased levels of anxiety. Things like brain tumors, things like malfunctioning adrenal glands, or certain medications, alcohol or drug abuse withdrawals. These sorts of organic issues can lead to increased levels of anxiety. But by and large... And and this is going to be a controversial statement. This would be very, very controversial to the medical world. By and large, a vast majority of cases of anxiety are not caused by organic issues. They're not caused by organic issues. And that may be controversial, but I called John Street this week, and he said I can say that. Most instances of anxiety are not caused by physical uh, issues in the body, like a brain tumor that can be operated on. And yet, although anxiety is not brought about in a vast majority of cases because of organic issues, the ADAA says that anxiety needs treatment. It needs a treatment. And here are your treatment options. There's four of them. First of all, you can be medicated Uh, SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors could be prescribed to you. SNRIs, serotonin neuroepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Benzodiazepines or tricyclic antidepressants. Four different medication options that could be given to you as treatment. Or if medications don't work, therapy can be used to treat your anxiety, or a combination of meds and therapy. Or finally, something called transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS. (laughs) I learned something about TMS this week. It was fun. And it was hard to, you know, stop myself from laughing when you read... TMS has very little side effects. It's like, well, there's a, there's a sentence for our website. 
Transcranial magnetic stimulation, where they wrap a coil around your skull and through gentle electromagnetic pulses will stimulate targeted areas of your brain in order to remove anxiety, all of which are treatment options for your worry. But friends, let me be very blunt and say this understanding of our anxiety is thoroughly unbiblical. The Bible does not teach that anxiety is an illness. The Bible does not teach that anxiety is only resolved through treatment. The Bible does not teach that our anxiety must be dealt with externally. It doesn't teach that anxiety can be electromagnetically massaged out of your brain. It doesn't teach that anxiety is outside of your control. In fact, the opposite is true. The opposite is true. For our time today, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to be spending our time here in some, uh, a big portion of Scripture here. And, and this is not going to be a word-for-word, phrase-by-phrase examination of this passage. However, I just want to pull out some big-picture ideas, okay, big-picture ideas about anxiety. And we're going to start beginning in verse 25. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, and this is going to be, I'm sure, a very, very common uh, memorized portion of Scripture for you. This is, as I have struggled with anxiety in the past, been very, very helpful to me in my walk. So let's read beginning with verse 25. Jesus says this in his Sermon on the Mount. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor do they gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they are? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Friends, this text sounds nothing like what we've heard from the psychologists. I mean, as a matter of fact, Jesus demolishes the modern psychology movement in the very first sentence. Do not be worried about your life. Jesus commands you, don't be anxious. He commands you, do not be worried. That implies then, friends, you are in control of your worry. 
You are in control of your anxiety. And what's the treatment? Stop it. (laughs) Stop being worried. Now, that sounds very easy, right? Oh, boy, do I wish that sometimes when I'm anxious, I can just stop. I wish I could just stop it. It's hard, even as Christians. If anxiety is within my control and Jesus tells me not to do it, then why is it such an issue for me? Why is it such an issue for us? Well, the central reason for our anxiety is found in the central portion of this passage. Look towards the center at verse 30. The very end, what does Jesus say at the end of verse 30? He makes a diagnosis. You of little faith. See, friends, the reasons for our anxiety, the reasons for our worry is because of a lack of faith. And specifically, a lack of faith in a sovereign God. A lack of faith in a sovereign God. But Jesus' words shed light on why we, shouldn't, we should have faith in our sovereign God. These, these words here in this passage tell us why it is that we should have faith in a sovereign God, why we should have faith without fear. And so, for the remainder of our time together, I would like to draw out some realities about this sovereign God. This sovereign God over my life, which will help me be obedient to Jesus' command not to worry. If anxiety is an issue of faith then what must I believe about God to help me combat my anxieties? Okay, so that's going to be the remainder of our time together. Four reasons not to worry or four things that I need to believe about God so that I cannot worry. Okay, that's going to be the remainder of our time. And the first point is this. The first thing that I need to believe, first reason not to worry is, number one, God has purpose for my life. God has a purpose For my life. Immediately after Jesus tells his listeners not to worry, verse 25, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Jesus asks this rhetorical question at the end of verse 25 Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He's asking a question, isn't there more to your lifespan than what you eat? Isn't there more to your body than what you dress it up with? Do these things not have a purpose? Does your life and your body not have a purpose? Do you not have a purpose? Well, the answer to that question, the rhetorical question that he asks is, yes, life is more than these things. Life is more than how long I live. Life is more than what I dress myself up to be like. See, when we worry, we fail to see that our life has a purpose. We fail to see that our life has a bigger significance than the current thing that we're worried about. When we worry, we become focused on the the earthly and temporal matters, and we lose sight of the big picture the purpose of our life. See, our worries typically center around two things, prolonging my life and enjoying it as much as possible. 
I want to live a long life, and I want to live it lavishly. I want to live it comfortably. I want to continue comfortably with, with no hurdles, with no setbacks, with no trials, with no heartaches. But that's futile. That's futile. You cannot accomplish that. As an example of this, we can go to Job 14. Job chapter 14. And in the first two verses of that chapter, Job says this. Man who was born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Before that, in chapter 5 of Job, he says this in verse 7. Job 5, 7. For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upwards. In summary of these two verses, Job says this. Life is short and life is hard. Life is short and life is hard. Therefore... Setting your heart to do everything that you can do to lengthen your days and limit your troubles, limit your suffering, limiting your heartache is futile. It's vanity. It cannot be accomplished. Is there anybody here in this room who's never had hardships in your life? Right? We all have. So if that's the purpose of our life, then we've all failed. We've all failed. That cannot be the purpose of our life. Life is more than living a long time and living it comfortably. The purpose of life is more than just pampering myself to make sure that I don't have trials, to make sure I don't have suffering. So what is the purpose of my life? What's the purpose of my life? What's the purpose of your life? What's the purpose of our lives? In short, it's this, it's to glorify God. That's the purpose of life. That's the meaning of life, is to glorify God. And what do I mean by that? I am to believe what God says that I need to believe. And I need to live my life the way that God says I need to live my life. And that I need to manifest that godly beliefs and godly living to a watching world so that they would give glory to God. That's glorifying God. That's living for his glory. Believe what he says I need to believe. Live the way that he says I need to live and manifest that to a watching world so that they would give glory to God. It's exactly what Jesus said. If we're back in the Sermon on the Mount here, look at chapter 5 and verse 14. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Can't you see now why Jesus would ask this rhetorical question here after he tells us not to worry? Is not life more than food that you eat? Is not life more than your pampering, the clothing that you put on. The purpose of your life is not to live for yourself. The purpose of your life is not to protect yourself and to advance yourself. The purpose of our life is outside of ourselves. The purpose of our life is much bigger than us. It is to glorify God. It's to be God's kind of man or woman 
and to make him known to the people around us. That's the purpose of life. So worrying about the things in life, worrying about the things that you're currently in the midst of, worrying about your struggles, your trials, your hardships, is neglecting the greater purpose in your life. Having anxiety about your difficulties gets your thinking off course. When you feel anxious, friends, believe that God has a much bigger purpose for your life than just comfortable living, than just trial-free living. God has a much bigger purpose for your life, and it's far beyond the particular challenges that you are currently in the midst of. Now, not only is it necessary for us to believe, to have faith in the fact that God has a purpose for our life, but secondly, reason why we shouldn't believe, or we shouldn't have anxiety, that's a, those are bad things to combine there, reasons why we shouldn't have anxiety or something to believe in about God. Number two, we have to believe that God has provided for our life. God has provided for our life. God continues to provide for our life. Verse 26, Jesus says this, Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. As, studying this, as I'm studying the Sermon on the Mount, every time I come to this passage, I just have to stop and reflect on the reality that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God on earth, standing in front of a group of people, is speaking, and then all of a sudden there's birds to point out. I just think that's a beautiful picture that God in creation or in control over the whole universe has come on earth and perhaps he made those birds fly over so that he can give an illustration. Hey, look at these birds. Look at these birds of the air. It's just a beautiful picture, a beautiful illustration. Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor do they reap, nor gather into the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. I looked up the 10 most common birds in Southern California. I'm not really much of a bird watcher. I'm more of a bird eater. <laughs> um, you come over to our house for Thanksgiving, and you'll see we, we do the real deal with a turkey dinner. The 10 most common birds in Southern California. Some of them are like Alan's hummingbird or Anna's hummingbird. We have American gold finches. We have house finches, morning doves, American robins. But the one that kind of, you know, piqued my interest was the California scrub jay. California scrub jay. You guys know what that is? You know, it's a, you know, average size blue and, and white bird. It's, it's bigger than a finch, but probably a little bit smaller than uh, a blue jay. You know, it has an interesting ability. Interesting fact about the, the scrub jay is its ability to do something they call scatter hoarding. Scatter hoarding. One website says this. Uh, a scrub jay spends their day foraging for seeds and acorns, and then they store their stash in little piles all over their territory in order to store up for when food is scarce. So rather than cooperating with one another and building one large pile, each scrub jay will hide their food in many smaller piles 
sometimes as many as many as 200 piles 200 piles so researchers researchers believe that scrub jays must have incredible spatial awareness and memory in order to locate all their piles of food i can't remember where i parked my car <laughs> let alone 200 places to store food and they estimate that at each autumn Amongst those 200 or so piles of food, a scrub jay, a single scrub jay, will gather about 50 pounds of food. It is incredible to think that these small creatures, they're not worried about finding food. They're not anxious about whether or not they're going to have enough. They scavenge and they're able to find over 50 pounds of seeds in just a few weeks' time. And that's just one bird. That's just one bird. So when you stop and think about the millions of bird species and the millions of different birds all across the globe, it's incredible to consider how they are provided for. It's the perfect illustration that Jesus could use about provision. Jesus says, look, your heavenly Father feeds them. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Then he asks another rhetorical question at the end of verse 26. Are you not worth much more than they are? Are you not worth much more than these birds that that God is providing for? Of course you are. Of course you are. You are created in the image of God. You are a small representation of the character and nature of God. As Psalm 139 says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Birds can't say that about themselves. So it's assumed then that if God takes care of these small insignificant birds, and you must have the faith that he will provide what you need as well. Look, the world may tell you, hey, we should be worried about a shortage of food. The world food supply is going down. Jesus says, nope, don't worry about that. Your heavenly Father feeds the birds. He will certainly take care of you. He will feed you as well. And Jesus gives another example of God's provision And verses 28 and 29, he says, And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Clothing was more significant in biblical times than now. I mean, to an extent now, uh, the clothing that we wear, wear does signify, you know, wealth to an extent. But in biblical times, clothing represented wealth. It represented religious piety. It represented social status. Clothing was used as pledges. It was used in court proceedings. It was even used to reflect one's emotional state. Therefore, an abundance of good quality clothing aided in a comfortable lifestyle. It aided in bringing about a sense of security for the person that owned this good quality and abundance of clothing. Now, although clothing did help in aiding, you know, protecting against the elements, it meant a whole lot more to Jesus' audience than that, okay? In today's world, a close comparison would be maybe the houses we live in or the cars we drive, or the jewelry that we wear. 
See, these things are not essential for our life. They may help in some extent, you know, from protecting us from the elements. But really, the reason why we want bigger and better of these things is because it aids in our comfortability. It helps us feel luxurious. That's kind of a close comparison to what he's talking about in regards to clothing for his audience. So to address their concern over clothing, Jesus points to the, the lilies of the field, the wild flowers that were there, northern part of the Sea of Galilee, wild flowers that just grew in the grass. And he says, look, God closed the fields. He closed the fields, and he does so beautifully. He says, even King Solomon, perhaps the man in the Old Testament that lived the most luxurious and comfortable and secure lifestyle, even he wasn't clothed like the lilies of the field. And Jesus goes on in verse 30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, literally, it's, they would harvest the grass and use it in their ovens for, for pottery, or, pottery or, or cooking or whatever, they would cut the grass down and use that as kindling. Look, if he closed the fields in that way, and it's here today and tomorrow's thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? The answer again is, of course he will. Of course he will. God not only provides for us what is essential for our life, food, water, shelter, but friends, we have to stop and recognize God has blessed us far above and beyond that too. He has given us many blessings that are not essential for our life, but he's just kind to us. Look, I am grateful for air conditioning. I am grateful for indoor plumbing. I am grateful for clean water on tap, for tennis shoes, for modern transportations. These things make life comfortable, right? But none of these things are really essential for our lives. So we shouldn't be anxious about whether we will have what we need in the future. God has lavishly supplied everything that we need and beyond that. He's always done that. He's been kind and faithful to us every single day of your life to get you here. And so you need to have faith and believe that he's going to continue to do that for you. We should not be anxious because our sovereign God has been faithful to provide for us. Jesus says that what we need to do is have faith that he will continue to do so. And that makes sense, right? God has purposed my life. He has a purpose for my life. Therefore, would he not also provide for that purpose? We need to believe that. God has a purpose for my life. God has provided for my life. Thirdly, God has predetermined my life. God has predetermined my life. Look back at verse 27. In the middle of these illustrations of the birds and the lilies, Jesus says, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to your life? Literally, a single cubit, a single measure of length. The point that Jesus is getting at is that worry is of no benefit to extend one's life, even a single measure. There's no positive gain to be had 
by worrying. But even deeper than that is the reality that worry cannot extend your life beyond what God has already predetermined. Look, do you believe that God knows the day in which you're going to die? God has determined that. God has determined the exact moment, how and when that's going to happen. Look, Job, we can go back again to, well, you don't need to go there. I'll just read it to you. Job 14, again, in verse 4, you can just write it down if you want. Job 14 and verse 4 says, uh, oops, sorry, verse 5, yes, I wrote the wrong one down. Man's days are determined. Thank you very much, sir. Man's days are determined. The number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Man's days are determined. Psalm 139 and verse 16 says this, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that you have ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Let me read that verse again. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there were none of them. See, God has determined the length of your days. God has determined the length of your days. He has determined the perfect time allotted for you on this earth to accomplish his purpose. And in that moment, when your life comes to an end, it will be the perfect time because that's the time that God has ordained it. I once knew a man who uh, he was sharing a story about when he found out that his father died. He says that he was enjoying time on a golf course and he received a phone call from his wife to let him know that his father had passed away. And yet, although very, very saddened by the news and so desperately wishing that he could have been there with his father instead of being on a golf course at that sobering moment, he recognized that this was the perfect time. This was the perfect time because this was the time that God had ordained. God had established the exact number of days that my father would live, and he has determined that he would, he would die at that hour, at that minute, at that millisecond, and he determined that I wouldn't be there. And so this man rested in the fact that God's timing is perfect. He rested in the reality that God doesn't make mistakes. Everything that he does is perfect. And therefore, it was the perfect time for his dad to pass. Friends, each one of us has a perfect time coming. Your parents have a perfect time coming. Your children have a perfect time coming. We all have that perfect time coming because God has established our days. And having anxiety about your life does not add to your life, nor does it take away from it. It doesn't change God's plan for you that he's already determined. When you feel anxiety, have faith that God has planned your days. And no matter how much we worry, scratch and claw to accomplish our own will, nothing can change what God has already predetermined for us. Now, we may ask the question, but does, 
Does God know what he's doing? <laughs> does God know what he's doing? Of course he does. That's our fourth point. Not only do I need to believe that God has purpose for my life and believe that God provides for my life and believe that God has predetermined my life, but fourthly, I need to believe that God has prescribed my life. God has prescribed my life. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And here's the verse. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Here in this one phrase, Jesus quickly dismisses the laughable idea that God isn't aware of what you need. God knows that you need water. God knows that you need food. God knows that you need clothing. After all, he created you. I think it's safe to say that God knows what he needs for his creation, right? That's like considering whether or not Henry Ford knew that the Model T needed gas in order to drive off the conveyor belt. Of course he knew that. He created it. But I think the point to be made here is this. God only knows that you need food, that you need clothing, You need water, but God knows everything that you need. Everything you need, not just for your physical life, but also for your spiritual life. See, God has, this is what I mean by God has prescribed my life, okay? God has a prescription for my life. Here's what I mean. God has authoritatively determined and decreed the best treatment for my problem. And what is my biggest problem? Sin. And he has determined, he has prescribed everything that would come to pass in order to treat my problem. Now, can we pause and say this? Sometimes what I need and what I want don't line up. Right? A lot of times what I need and what I want aren't a perfect match. God knows that sometimes I need circumstances in my life that will reveal sin in my heart so that it can be properly dealt with. God knows that sometimes I need trials so that my faith can be refined and strengthened, just like James 1 says. God has prescribed a treatment for my sin And that treatment comes through the circumstances that he brings in my life. God has prescribed the circumstances in your life because he knows what you need. He knows how to bring the sin out in your hearts. He knows how to deal with it. Look, God prescribed the wilderness wanderings to deal with the sinful hearts of the Israelites. God prescribed a fatal illness to King Hezekiah to strengthen his faith and commitment to serving the Lord. God prescribed a storm and a whale to deal with the disobedience of Jonah. But perhaps one of the best examples comes from the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says this beginning in verse 7. He's talking about these revelations 
of heaven that God has given to him. And he says in verse 7, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. See, God had prescribed a thorn in the flesh because he knew it would prevent Paul from exalting himself. It would keep Paul humble. He prescribed the events in his life to deal with his sin. Now, perhaps Paul grew anxious about this thorn in the flesh, whatever the situation may be. And so he implores God that he would remove it. Concerning this, I implore that the Lord would remove it three times. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul didn't go on continuing to be anxious about this because God says his grace is sufficient, his power is being perfected in in weakness. Paul realized that God is manifesting his power in his life. He's sustaining him. He's sanctifying him in the midst of these weaknesses. And so therefore, Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. This is exactly what the doctor had ordered for Paul. God knew Paul needed that thorn in the flesh. And God knows what you and I need. Friends, have you considered that God knows exactly what you need in order to be like Christ? He knows exactly what you need in order to conform him him into the image of his son. And look, if that's your ultimate desire, and it should be, as a Christian, to be conformed in the image of your Savior, if you say, I want to be like Christ, I want sin removed from my life, then do you recognize that maybe your sufferings and your trials are to your advantage? Cancer can be to your advantage. Difficult family dynamics and situations can be to your advantage. Difficult financial hardships could be to your advantage. When Rachel and I moved out here from Ohio to attend seminary, we came with a savings and in our minds thought this is going to get us through the entire time in seminary. Well, those finances were gone within six months, completely gone. And it was in that moment I realized I've not been putting my faith and trust in the Lord. I've been putting faith and trust in the bank account. And as that number kept dwindling, my faith kept dwindling. And I should have been putting my faith and trust in the one that provides the number in that bank account. See, God removed those things, removed the the number in our account because it revealed sin in my heart. God knew exactly what I needed and he prescribed those events. God knows what you need. God knows how to conform you into the image of Christ. He prescribes these things for our life exactly for that purpose. What does Romans 8.28 say? We know it well. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose for your life. He has a purpose for your life. And that purpose is not just to live long and live comfortably. 
to live long and to live lavishly. God's purpose for your life is that you would honor and glorify God, that you would be his kind of man and his kind of woman. And because of that purpose, he promises he's going to provide for you. He's going to give you what you need in order to accomplish that purpose. And he has a predetermined plan for how long you're going to be here on this earth to accomplish that purpose. And he has prescribed every single event in your life to conform you into the image of Christ so that you can accomplish that purpose. Therefore, you have no reason to worry. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about the things that you're struggling with. Don't be anxious about the temporal things. Life is so much bigger than that. Don't be worried about the circumstances you find yourself in. God has prescribed these things because he knows that you need them. Now in closing, perhaps... Perhaps you've analyzed your life and your current circumstances and you recognize that you haven't even considered God. Perhaps you are in the midst of serious trials and struggles right now in life and you haven't consulted with God. You haven't even thought of Him. You haven't brought your concerns to Him. Perhaps as we've gone through these reasons, these four reasons, not to worry, you find yourself still very, very anxious. If that's the case, I have to ask you, is Jesus speaking to you in verse 30 when he says, you of little faith? Are you lacking faith completely? You have no faith at all? Do you lack faith in God living your life consumed with anxiety over your well-being, your health, your comfort, your finances? Friends, look, Jesus says at the beginning of verse 32, the Gentiles seek these things. Unbelievers live this way, completely consumed with anxieties about this world. Now, remember what I said at the very beginning. The root of anxiety is a lack of faith. So why do you lack faith? Because you're in love with this world and the pleasures of this world. Did you notice something at the very beginning of verse 25? Jesus says, for this reason, I say to you, don't be worried. For what reason? What reason? Well, look what comes before it. Verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Or where your treasure, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that God needs to be your treasure. 
God needs to be the treasure of your heart. Whatever it is that you treasure in this life will ultimately become your pursuit in life. And it will have an effect on your life. And eventually it will be the master of your life. So if you are a Christian, you should be one who has said, look, heaven is the treasure of my heart. God is the treasure of my heart. Living to glorify God, that's the treasure of my heart. Therefore, that's going to be my pursuit in life And I can say with a clean conscience that God is my master. There is no split devotion in my life. And therefore, I have no reason to worry. But if you are one that lacks faith completely, you haven't made Christ the treasure of your heart. You are treasuring this world. And you are pursuing this world. And the world has become your master. And you cannot serve two masters. There's no room for split loyalty in the kingdom of God. You need to run to Christ and make him the treasure of your heart. You need to put your faith and trust in him. You need to live for him, not for your own life anymore. Or else you're going to be crippled with fear and anxiety your entire life. And then you can join the ranks of Christians who Follow the command that Jesus says in verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. As Christians, we just trust and obey. We seek the kingdom of God. We seek his righteousness and we have all the faith in the world that God's going to provide everything that we need. And therefore, we have no reason to be anxious about this life. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning confessing that oftentimes our faith is imperfect. Our faith is often very, very short-sighted. We consume ourselves with the fears and anxieties of, of the world around us. And yet here in your word, you give us clear reasons why we should not worry. Father, we thank you that you have given us a purpose for this life far beyond living long and living lavishly. We thank you and we trust your promise that you will provide for our needs to accomplish that purpose. We trust that you have predetermined our days from the very beginning. And Lord, we trust that you are good and you do good and therefore you prescribe everything in our life to conform us into the image of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would have your way in our, in our lives, in our hearts. And we pray that you would give us a peace that surpasses all understanding and that we would not fear for the trials that we face. We entrust these things to you. Thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen.